There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. John DeLorean wasn't just a car guy. He was a celebrity in his own right. Welcome to episode 40 of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails. What led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies. I am your host, Deborah Chen, and this week we'll be looking at the iconic car company from the 80s, the DeLorean Motor Company. When someone says the words back to the future, I immediately think of Christopher Lloyd. I think great Scott. Time travel. Biff. DeLorean. How weird it would be to run into my parents' high school aged. Michael J. Fox is Marty McFly. Hoverboard. Johnny B. Good. The DeLorean, of course. The flux capacitor. The DeLorean. Uh, Robert Zemeckis. Marty McFly. Calvin Klein. A time machine. DeLorean. Clock Tower. DeLorean. And I think of the outstanding DeLorean that was the time machine from the movie. Of all cars, probably one of the most era-defining of the 80s was the DeLorean. Sleek, sexy, unconventional. This iconic car was featured in the hit film Back to the Future, memorializing it as timeless, futuristic, and visionary. If you haven't seen the sci-fi cult classic and need a quick synopsis, Back to the Future follows a small-town California teen, Marty McFly, who travels through time in a machine, which was the DeLorean car, and he did so with the help of his friend, eccentric scientist Doc Brown. The movie is set in 1985, where they transport back to 1955, accidentally goofing up Marty McFly's parents' love story, which puts his very existence at risk, so they need to course correct. Anyway, the movie was a blockbuster success, setting off a popular trilogy. But the future really wasn't in the cards for the DeLorean. In fact, it didn't even make it past 1982, only a year after it rolled out its cars to the world and three years before the movie premiered. Instead, what it did have was a flurry of celebrity fanfare and hype, engineering ingenuity, 
and an adored and revered CEO whose time in the driver's seat ended in a tailspin of lies, scandal, cocaine, bankruptcy, racketeering, criminal charges, and government conspiracies. Welcome to the story of the DeLorean Motor Company, revving up its engine in 1975, tossed into the junkyard by 1982. I'm so excited to launch season two of The Great Fail on the DeLorean because growing up as an 80s kid, there's some things that are instantly familiar to me and trigger a sense of nostalgia, like my Cabbage Patch Kids or Garbage Pail Card Collection. And then movies upon movies that seem to have taken way too much of my childhood. Of course, one of them being Back to the Future. As a child watching those films, it never occurred to me that the DeLorean was anything other than a made-up time machine. I didn't know it was a real car because I've never seen one in person and it looked nothing like what was out there in the streets. And it would be many years later when I would come to find out just how much the DeLorean, as a futuristic space-age promise of the auto industry, had defied all expectations, breaking the mold, and redefined how cars were made, even to this day. Now, let's go back to 1981 to the year that the first DMC DeLorean was made, when Ronald Reagan was sworn in as our 40th president, NASA launched the world's first reusable manned spacecraft, the first woman was appointed to the Supreme Court, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and many of us were glued to our tube watching Three's Company, The Jeffersons, and M.A.S.H., and in our cars, we were blasting the hit tunes of that year, Blondie's The Tide Is High, Hollow Notes' Kiss On My List, and Ario Speedwagon's Keep On Loving You. And in some parts of the world, there were several thousands of drivers blasting these very songs from their brand new DeLorean cars. To understand the meteoric rise of the DeLorean, we need to know more about the man behind it all, John Zachary DeLorean, whose story is nothing short of spectacular and scandalous. Growing up in the heart of the automotive industry, Detroit, Michigan, it seemed like a future in the auto industry was always fated for Mr. DeLorean. He was the son of immigrant factory workers. His dad actually was a union organizer and foundry worker at Ford, but was stunted in his career growth due to struggles with alcoholism. 
Despite the difficult home life that the younger DeLorean experienced, he still excelled in school, was elected into the Honor Society, and went off to serve in the Army, later earning a master's in automotive engineering and an MBA from the University of Michigan. It wasn't long before those around him started to recognize him as a rising star. Soon after landing a job in Chrysler, he found himself moving up the corporate ladder at a quick pace. At age 40, he left his post and moved on to become the youngest ever division head at General Motors. And there he was credited for designing GM's GTO and the Firebird. But it was what he did at Pontiac that would be mind-blowing. You see, there was a problem that was occurring at that time. GM was the biggest company in the world, but its Pontiac models weren't resonating with its audience and it was losing appeal with the younger generation. It needed saving. So Mr. DeLorean did what he would ultimately become known for. He took a big risk with his bold, forward thinking. He replaced the standard engine, redesigned the body to be more curvaceous, added in a longer hood and made it sportier and faster, unknowingly reshaping and building America's first muscle car, the Pontiac Gran Turismo Umalagato GTO, the car that started the muscle car revolution. His skill and innovative mind made him a star at work, but he had that star power in other areas too. He became known as the man about town, Handsome, debonair, and charismatic. A playboy, some would say, with fine taste in clothing, women, and of course, cars. Among a class of corporate businessmen, he stood out, donning the trendiest of clothes, and with an air of sophistication, hobnobbed around Los Angeles with celebrities, models, and actresses. And by 1973, he had it all. The fame, the accolades, the money. But he was ambitious and he wanted more. He wanted to build his own brand. And his brainchild naturally would be an extension of himself, the DeLorean. And here's where I bring in Barry Wills, who, as he describes, is the only surviving executive director of the DeLorean Motor Cars Limited and their longest serving employee over its entire history. Here's how he first got involved with the company. My background in the auto industry had been in purchasing, although I moved on to a much broader general management sphere of activity through the last couple of jobs I'd had in the industry. But my core skill was that of purchasing. And when I met John, much to my surprise, within um, half an hour of the interview, he'd offered me the job of director of purchasing. And Wills took it, undoubtedly, because that prototype was nothing like what he had ever seen in his years working at Jaguar. The DeLorean was revolutionary and the epitome of ostentatious. It was unique, dramatic, and immediately recognizable. Mr. DeLorean had three unwavering demands for his vision. The DeLorean was unique in uh, 
one or two ways. But the most significant factor about the DeLoyer was that his body was of stainless steel. They were unpainted. It had never been done before. And in fact, it's never been done since, for that matter. And also, the car had a uh, rear engine in the style of the Porsches of, the, of that era, which had gullwing doors. It wasn't the first car to have gullwing doors. The Mercedes SL preceded it as a gullwing door car. The infamous Bricklin that was built in, in Canada had gullwing doors. But the combination of stainless steel body surface, a rear engine, and gullwing doors was absolutely unique. And those are the three factors that John told me were absolutely sacrosanct in terms of the specification of the car. Anything could be changed other than those three elements. The two-seater sports car was made of stainless steel, so it would never rust. It had the iconic gullwing doors, which meant the doors hinged at the top to open upwards like the wings of a seagull. And it had a mid-range engine. These three features in one car had never been accomplished before. It would be unprecedented, and it most certainly would turn heads. He recruited the most sought-after designer, Giorgetto Guiguero, whose resume included Ferrari, Maserati, Alfa Romeo, and Mustang. And then he enlisted some of the best marketers and executives in the industry. Mr. DeLorean's celebrity clout also allowed him to secure some very unconventional and high-profiled investors, including Johnny Carson and Sammy Davis Jr. The word charisma was invented for John. Uh, he was a charming individual. He looked the part, uh, he acted the part, and he was the part. He was quite remarkable. And of course, he had to assist him, his wife, Christina Ferrari, who was America's top model at that time, who uh, was absolutely delightful and charming. And uh, with Christina on his arm, it was... Uh, quite a factor in terms of attracting uh, the press. That's right. He was married to supermodel Christina Ferrer during that time and to understand just how beloved he really was. There was one key element at the uh, Geneva Motor Show uh, when we were launching the car in Europe, let's say. It was press day at that motor show. The journalists and cameramen were dotted all around the, the halls talking to executives on the various car stands when suddenly a buzz went around that John DeLorean and Christina Ferrari had arrived and there was an amazing rush of journalists and cameramen towards the door that they arrived in. And um, it really was a staggering moment when uh, you realize that your boss wasn't just a car guy, he was a, a celebrity in his own right. So as the story goes, the unveiling of the concept for the DMC-12 became what we know as the DeLorean. And around 1979, the factory began built out once the money started rolling in. DMC's main headquarters were in Detroit, and Mr. DeLorean also set up a factory in Northern Ireland because that allowed him to secure the biggest chunk of his funding. It was offered financial incentives from the British government because it created jobs in Belfast, which had the highest rate of unemployment and workers without trades. 
many of whom never really held a job before. This funding, along with his contributions from his investors, totaled $100 million. It seemed like the DeLorean was on its way up. The prototype was hand-built, and boy, was it something of the future. Everyone who was anyone wanted to get their hands on it. The premise of the advertising would be on the concept of being inducted into an elite club that would allow you to be, quote, living the dream, end quote, by owning one. But what wasn't expected was that they were about to be living a nightmare. Now, bear in mind, once funding was received, Mr. DeLorean was set out to do something that no one else has ever done before. And that was to establish a team, establish a support staff, a workforce, build out a huge manufacturing plant that would make a stainless steel sports car all within 18 months. We were taking a car from two prototypes, which were not fully proven, were not fully engineered really, but were certainly been built to raise the funds very successfully and take those prototypes to production vehicles. And in a, in a remarkably short period of time, uh, in fact, John had convinced the government that it could be done in 18 months. We all knew that that was impossible. Putting that into context, it takes Porsche seven years to design and build a brand new car. It takes Ford five years. Was Mr. DeLorean truly prepared to upend industry standards? Or was his fledgling company too ambitious, unrealistic, or maybe even reckless? The first car rolled off the line quickly in 1981, leaving no time to test, pilot, and fix the bugs before shipping cars off and fulfilling orders. But there were bugs, major ones. The gullwing doors didn't shut properly and oftentimes got stuck. The dye from the floor mats were rubbing off on shoes. The battery life was really short and stainless steel panels kept a visible trace of handmark prints and smudges. And unlike the Pontiac GTO, the DeLorean's horsepower was really quite underwhelming. It was rumored that when Johnny Carson took the DeLorean out for a spin on the first day, it broke down. Those sales at first were phenomenal because it outsold Porsche 911 and Mercedes in the U.S., it wasn't long before its reputation led to a slow in sales. And it didn't help that in a stroke of bad luck, British and Northern Ireland shipping workers went on strike, disrupting the supply chain and leading to labor problems, quality control issues, slowed manufacturing, which were all deterrents for production. Though many high-profile and famous people already had their orders in, once word on the production flaws got out, the company was in trouble. Their first year was shaping up to be a disaster and they would need more funding in order to get it back on track. However, the second year wasn't any better. 
The purpose of setting up in Belfast, Ireland was that it would be backed by British government's money. The DeLorean Motor Company had been promised more funding once the first cars rolled off the production line, except again due to poor timing and luck for the company. When Margaret Thatcher came into power, her conservative policies did not include continuing with this funding. At the same time, the U.S. was dragged into a recession that drove up fuel prices and slowed down car sales pretty abruptly. Wills had gone to the U.S. to suss out the car market earlier and saw just how quickly inventory was leaving dealerships. But within a month, the situation had changed completely. America entered the worst winter weather-wise that it experienced for decades. It brought pretty well the eastern side of the country to a halt. People stopped spending money on anything, never mind cars. Volkswagen, for instance, were building the rabbit out in America in those days. They closed their plant, never for it to reopen. So bad was the situation, the economic situation. It brought about a recession, a sudden snap recession that, as I say, caused people to stop buying anything. On the onset of the recession, Mr. DeLorean did what he knew best. He made bold moves and rather than sit on a large inventory of unsold cars, decided to build even more cars. His idea was that he would pivot and sell his vehicles into Europe, even though the original intent was to sell only in the United States. He pushed production from 50 cars a day to 80 cars a day, which many saw as financial suicide. This compounded what was already a high load of debt. And with government funding out, layoffs began. And just one year after he rolled his first cars into the showroom, the DeLorean Motor Company was sadly filing for bankruptcy. As the promising future of the young company skid into a halt, a final bump in the road really did them in. Perhaps most notable to the ending of the DeLorean was what occurred in October 1982, when Mr. DeLorean was arrested for drug trafficking in a Los Angeles hotel room after an alleged attempt to smuggle around 59 pounds of cocaine as part of a $24 million trafficking operation he was said to be financing in a dramatic effort to save his company. The details that the FBI laid out were vague and confusing. From who had the drugs to who proposed the operation to just how many millions of dollars were moving and how many millions of dollars were missing from DMC's accounts. And after the company filed for bankruptcy, it was discovered that $17 million of their investment money was missing and all of the DeLorean's financiers, including the British government, were asking questions. Except the paper trail was too hard to follow. These inquiries eventually led to John Z. DeLorean's indictment in 1985 on 15 federal charges of fraud, racketeering, and wire fraud. As for the drug sting, Mr. DeLorean was ultimately acquitted of them 
finding he had been entrapped by the FBI. I was given instruction the night before John's arrest, which demonstrates how the American government and the British government knew exactly what was going on. I was told that I'd got to close the company the following morning. It was only when I woke up that following morning uh, to hear on the news that John had been arrested that I understood the reasons why. In these hazy details that the Bureau had laid out at the time of the arrest, it was found that the undercover agents and informants had found out the amount of money Mr. DeLorean needed to keep the company afloat and posed as investors for two months before revealing to him in the final moments that the money hinged on a drug trafficking scheme. So the fact that eventually John was found not guilty because uh, the, the clear entrapment of the situation made no difference. He was cleared, but the company was still dead. The DeLorean name would never be the same again. As tarnished as his car's reputation, Mr. DeLorean himself painted a sad picture of his own reputation. And during a press conference following his acquittal, when asked whether he would return to the auto industry, he quipped, Would you buy a used car from me? Back to the Future debuted in 1985, right around the time of John DeLorean's trial. And while the reputation of both the car and the man seemed to be totaled, Marty McFly's adventure in the car from the future froze it in time. As an iconic character in a blockbuster that would be upheld as one of the greatest films ever. Some have lamented that perhaps, had the movie been released during the production of The DeLorean, things may have been very different. But that goes with the story of the DeLorean, doesn't it? A string of bad luck and worse timing. In a 1996 TV interview, Mr. DeLorean said, I ended up living a lifestyle I couldn't believe. The tragic thing is, you start to believe your own press. I fully confess to becoming egomaniacal. You believe you are omnipotent, and you surround yourself by people who tell you what you want to hear rather than the truth. The DeLorean was so tied into the history of automobiles that even after John DeLorean's death in 2005, supporters and detractors are still debating his accomplishments and failures. There are still over 6,000 original DMC-12s in the world today two-thirds of the 9,000 that were ever made. Car enthusiasts worship the DeLorean and the people who have worked at the factories or headquarters still get together to talk about the magic of the cars and the beauty of that time. But the best way to sum up the final days of the DeLorean story can be found in the car itself. It was said that in the last DeLorean to have come off the production line, it had the words etched inside the right-hand door, which read, The end of the dream, or is it? 
special thanks to Barry Wills for his contributions to this episode and sharing his story on the iconic DeLorean cars. And thank you for tuning in to this week's The Great Fail. Please make sure to visit our website at thegreatfail.com for behind the scene audio and video footage. If you like these episodes and want us to continue bringing you more, please subscribe to our newsletter because, well, not connecting with you would be our great fail. While you're at it, simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. The research on each episode is extensive, but none of them would be possible without the tireless efforts of researchers, writers, and reporters. They are all credited on thegreatfail.com under our show notes. Lastly, you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Great Fail Pod. And please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on iTunes to show your support. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And remember, folks, with great failure comes great liability. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.